If you're scowling after those words, you have a problem maybe we should talk about after worship. It's an old, old, happy song in the church, and we're less formal in the summer that gives us a chance to sing things like that, and uh, good for us. In the fourth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we find this piece of history. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is summer, it's vacation time in Michigan. Many of us have favorite places or kinds of place that we go back to every year. And for many of us, those favorite places involve water and therefore involve beaches. If you haven't already yet this summer, it's chances are before Labor Day comes, you'll find yourself walking along a beach somewhere in Michigan. We walk along the beaches generally looking in two different directions. There are those of us who walk in the sand, looking at the sand beneath our feet. We're sure that hiding in the sand is that perfect Petoskey stone we've looked for all of our lives, or that a valuable spar from an ancient wreck has just washed ashore, just waiting for us to discover. Or we've read that the number of Canada geese calling our fair state home has increased and we're simply watching where we step. But others walk along the beach looking at the distance, somewhere near that mystical line where the water seems to meet the sky, lost in, lost in thought, or simply soaking up the tranquility of the setting. That's a familiar activity and setting for almost all of us. If our Lord Jesus had a favorite place on the earth, It could be argued that that place involved the waters of the Sea of Galilee and the sand along its shore. Because again and again in the gospel histories of his life, we find him there, teaching those who would listen the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, feeding the hungry from his deep reservoir of compassion and power. It was there that he went to grieve when he learned of the death of John the Baptist. And it was there he whispered to quiet the raging of the wind and the sea. If this summer you find yourself enjoying the refreshing water and soft sands of one of our Michigan lakes, consider that this might be one of many evidences that you are indeed made in the image of the one described in one of our favorite calls to worship in this way. In his hand are the deep places of the earth, The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The shore of the Sea of Galilee is the setting for the encounter recorded in our text. Here we find Jesus walking along the beach. His pace is not that of the casual tourists who got up early and left his motel that morning to take pictures of the sunrise over the sea. 
It isn't that of a man lost in idle reverie. His steps are deliberate. His gaze is fixed as if he is looking for something or someone very particular. Along the way, he passes fishermen finishing their night's work, drawing their boats up onto shore, dragging their last nets into the shallows, sorting their catch, examining their equipment for the need for repair. He passes, their eyes meet. He nods or speaks or waves cordially, but presses on in his search. And then, in the near distance, he spots that thing or that person that he has come to find, and his pace quickens. He walks as if oblivious to everything else. What he has seen is two small groups of fishermen. To us, indistinguishable from all of the other fishermen to be found in that place, but different and very special in the eyes of Jesus, soon to be identified to us as the brothers Simon and Andrew and James and John. Names that figure prominently in that part of sacred history about to unfold before our eyes as we read on into the New Testament. In every list of Jesus' apostles, these four names always appear first. They were fishermen. Fishing for them was not a hobby, and it was not a sport. It was their profession. It was the means by which they supported themselves and their families. And it was their identity in the community. In the practice of their trade, they would not use spears or hooks, but nets. And the nets they used were of two different basic kinds. One was a circular net weighted all around the edges that was cast out into the water and then retrieved by a rope that acted as a kind of drawstring, closing the net as it came to shore. And the other was a seine, a long net fitted with floats on the top and weights on the bottom that was drawn through the water either by two or more men fishing in the shallows or from a boat where the water was deeper. Fishermen today speak of trolling and trawling. Trolling is basically dragging a bait behind a moving boat. Trawling is dragging a net behind a moving boat. Trawling was one of the means that these ancient fishermen would have used. We read these few verses of this ancient piece of history and we are struck by the amazing degree of detail that we find there. We read that this was not one call to four men, but two calls to two pairs of men. We are told very specifically by the historian that first Jesus found Simon and Andrew and called them, and then went down the beach a little further and found James and John and called them. We read that these two sets of fishermen were engaged in very different tasks. James and John were in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, while Simon and Andrew were still fishing. They were casting their net. It's intriguing. We read Luke's account of this same event in the fifth chapter of his gospel, and we discover why Simon and Andrew were still throwing their net out into the water, because there we read that up to that point in the early morning, quitting time for most fishermen, they were yet to catch a single fish that night. 
and they were still trying. This kind of detail is intriguing to the open-minded non-believer or to the young believer who is wrestling with the question, what is the Bible? The common view is that the Bible is easy to dismiss. We don't need it anymore. It's an old-fashioned collection of religious ideas, most of which have proved to be untrue or, or irrelevant to life today. But there's something in us that won't dismiss the Scriptures so easily as that. But still we're troubled about what we hear. Then we come upon these short five verses, and we notice the amazing degree of detail that contained. Detail that is not necessary to the story. Detail that contributes nothing to the progress of the gospel and the ministry of Jesus in the lives and eventually through the lives of these men. All we need to know is that Jesus appeared and said, follow me, and they left their nets. And yet we have this extra detail that reminds us that the Bible is not fable or myth. It is not a collection of fuzzy, unassisted memories written long after the events they report but rather a carefully chronicled, accurately written account of what men actually saw and what men actually heard. Let's be very careful that the willing skepticism and eager cynicism of the world doesn't poison our view of the Word of God and diminish its usefulness in our lives. I'd like to look with you at this encounter. We read these words, and as we think about them, there's something in them that strikes us as odd. To all appearances, a total stranger appears on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and speaks to these men and says, follow me. And according to the text, they immediately left their nets and followed him. They asked no questions. They had no discussion among themselves. They didn't say to him, could you give us about an hour to think about this? He said, follow me. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. Now we understand that Jesus is God. We understand that there is something subtly magnificent about him. The crowds were amazed at the authority of his teachings. Soldiers sent to arrest him shrank from their assignment. Demons feared him. Righteous men and women sensed in him something holy and true. We understand that the unseen working of the Holy Spirit can bring committed atheists to their knees at the very mention of this name that is above all names. And certainly prompt in the heart of him meeting, of those meeting him for the first time, the willingness to leave everything and to follow wherever he might lead. But still, to the thoughtful reader of Scripture, there's something in the immediacy and the totality of the response of these men that puzzles us and is hard to fully accept. This happens from time to time. We're reading through the Bible. I presume that's your habit. I presume that's your discipline. We're reading through the Bible devotionally. We're reading through the Bible studiously. We understand that it is the constitution of our faith. It is the foundation of life. That nowhere else are the answers to life's questions to be found. And thus we read and we read and we read, asking that God might open our mind, open our hearts to the truths and promises and requirements that he sets before us there. 
But every once in a while, when we read, we find something that doesn't quite fit the template in our minds that allows them to make sense to us. Our high view of the Bible causes us to put things, such things as these into the we'll understand it better by and by category, but still they puzzle us. And then, every once in a while, we have the delightful experience of rereading one of those puzzling passages and seeing something there we didn't see before that answers our question. Or we read some other passage of Scripture that casts new light on the puzzling passage. And we know that great, deep relief that comes from having a thorn removed from the paw of our mind. And so it is here. We're puzzled over the immediacy of the, the, of the response of these four men to this total stranger on the beach. But then we read on through the Gospel of Mark, through the Gospel of Luke, and we come to John. And in the first chapter of that fourth Gospel, we find the answers to our questions about the first Gospel. Because there we read that about 60 days after his baptism, after the Holy Spirit had literally driven him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, after the angels had helped him recover from the rigors of that time, Jesus reappeared at that place where John the Baptist was doing his ministry. And John saw him coming and said to those who were standing nearby, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're told that one of those who heard him say that was Andrew, Simon's brother, one of these four fishermen. And another we presume to be John, the author of that fourth gospel. They approached Jesus, they expressed interest in who he is and what he was doing, but we read that before Andrew would allow himself to join himself to Jesus, he first went to find his brother Simon and brought him back to where Jesus was. And thus here we read of the first encounter of three of these four men, of Andrew and Simon, and John. And it seems that after their initial encounter with Jesus, Jesus said to them, go back to your normal lives. And in a very short time, I will come for you and I will call you to follow me fully. Be ready when that comes. And thus they return to their nets and to their families. And in the fourth chapter of Matthew, we read not of the first, but of the second meeting of these men with our Lord Jesus, and the mystery is solved. Theologians call this the analogy of Scripture when our understanding of one part of the Word of God is informed by another part of the Word of God. And one of the signs that we're growing as students of the Bible is when that begins to happen to us. We're reading in one place and we're reminded of another place. We may have to get out our concordance to find out where it is, but when we find it, we find that there is an apparent relationship between these two passages and how sweet that is when that grid of intersecting passages begins to form deep within us. Last week, we learned that the fruit that we are called to bear for the glory of God in John 15 is nothing other than the virtues and the values of Christian character and Christian living that Paul mentions in Galatians 5. In Matthew 5, Jesus makes a strange statement about somebody wanting to sue you for your garment. 
We can't understand what that means until we read the 22nd chapter of Exodus, where we read of a circumstance in which a man borrows money from a friend, offering a piece of his clothing as collateral for that loan. And so it is here. And we find out now that this encounter in Matthew 4 is not the first time that at least three of these men had seen Jesus' face and had heard his voice. The word immediately can give a misleading impression. And that is that when Jesus said, follow me, they at once dropped everything at that instant, walked away from it forever to follow and to serve Christ. Leaving fish to rot in the sun, torn nets were left torn, leaking seams were abandoned, uncalked, and people who depended on them were left without support. Christ does not call us to irresponsibility. God does not call us to abandon legitimate obligations in order to serve his son, Jesus Christ. The young man who has experienced the call of God to pastoral ministry leaves a successful business and goes to seminary, but he cannot use his call by Christ as an excuse to stop making payments on his mortgage or his car loan. The man who was simultaneously a Sunday school teacher and a volunteer football and a, uh, official in a youth soccer league can't shirk the duties he's assumed in the one because he believes that his Sunday school lesson needs more time in preparation. When a believer gives his word in formal or informal ways, he or she can't use some higher responsibility to God as a reason to unilaterally withdraw that word. And in our text, we have to understand that the word immediately clearly means without hesitation. Surely it implies that that very day, perhaps that very hour, but we have to assume that Jesus said to them in effect, finish what you have to do and then come and follow me. I invite those of you who enjoyed this sort of thing to notice the specificity of this call. It was not a whosoever will call issued to everyone on the beach that morning, but a very specific call to certain men. And please notice that four men were called and four men answered. Their call was follow me and I will make you fishers of men. More specifically, in the last chapter of this same gospel, Jesus speaks to these same men and seven others and he says to them, go, and make disciples of all the nations. These men were called to be preachers and teachers. They were commissioned as ambassadors and advocates. They were to cast out the net of the gospel and draw in the souls of men. They were to labor in the master's harvest. Peter standing before Jews in Jerusalem on Pentecost. Paul gathering churches in Galatia and beyond. Such was the calling of these men. Formed in their mother's wombs and gifted by the Holy Spirit, exposed all through their lives to those people and circumstances that would shape them for godliness and leadership, and now called personally by the great head of the church himself. These men would leave the work that had marked their lives from early childhood. They would forsake the familiar streets and faces of their hometown, Old friends and perhaps even their families would be left behind as they followed Christ for the remainder of his earthly years 
and then marched out into the world bearing the banner of his cross. Their faithfulness is partially recorded in that inspired history, which is a part of the New Testament, and hidden at in traditions passed through the ages to us from the heirs of the apostolic church. They succeeded in doing what Christ called them to do, in part because of those abilities assigned to them by the Holy Spirit, in part because of their self-denying discipline and commitment, but above all else because God was at work in their work, using them as he uses us to accomplish his own perfect purposes. These are men worthy of our respect and our imitation. For churches and sons to be named after them is not inappropriate. For church leaders to study their lives to see what can be learned about them, about church leadership from their lives is most appropriate. Simon, Andrew, James, and John. New Testament names that would surely be added to that roster of the faithful and the useful found in the 11th chapter of Hebrews if its scope were not limited to the history of the Old Testament. But as we consider their lives and their calling, we need also to remember that these men were in a special category of authority in the early church. That caution is not always observed. Many of us, when we were in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, learned to make the motions of and sing the words of a familiar children's chorus. We learned to sing the words, I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you'll follow me. As I mentioned last week, the common view in the evangelical church is that every Christian is an evangelist or a missionary. All are called to labor in the Lord's harvest. Everyone is to be a fisher of men. Please note that these words were spoken to four men, identified to us very carefully by name, and spoken to none other. It was to the rich young ruler that Jesus said, go and sell everything that you have. As much as he might love it to be true, the chairman of the church's building fund financial drive cannot make those words apply to all Christians in general. Jesus said to the woman at the well, go, call your husband and come back to me. No preacher in his right mind would say that a woman has to be married in order to come to Christ. And yet we read these words, spoken only to four fishermen, and are encouraged, in fact, in some settings required to apply them to ourselves. Let's be very careful that we don't use the magnificent word of God to justify conclusions reached on non-biblical grounds or poorly thought out biblical grounds. Let's be sure that our conclusions are those required by a thoughtful review of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Paul asked the rhetorical question, are all apostles in a setting that clearly demands a negative answer? Consider the reward that these men experienced for their faithfulness to Christ. That reward would consist of the callous indifference or the fiery hostility of the non-believing world, 
and far too often of the half-hearted loyalty and affection of those who claimed allegiance to Christ. Peter, James, and Andrew would die horrific deaths as Christian martyrs, and John would die a natural death after a life marked by the persecution of the world and struggles against heresies within the church itself. Far from home, hated by the world, often lonely even in the church, their very lives the epitome of sacrifice. And yet we have to believe that if they were given the choice, each one of these four men would have left their nets and followed Christ as eagerly the second time as they did the first time. The gospel that they preached, the faith that sustained them from day to day, was not about them and their needs. It was about God and his glory. And we find it easy to believe that when each of these men passed from life to death to life, that Jesus rose in great interest from his seating position at the right hand of God the Father. And that when their souls entered the streets of the holy city, that the angels lined those streets, cheering them home. I'd like to take you back for just a moment to my description of Jesus walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Nearby was a city named Capernaum. There were thousands of people in the area, but the Lord was not looking for masses of men. He was looking for four. On his way to them, he walked past others, but apart from that cordiality common grace requires, he paid no special attention to them. But then when he found those men he was looking for, he approached them, he spoke to them directly, and he said to them, follow me. And they, prepared by the Holy Spirit, left their nets in eager obedience. If you're here this morning as a Christian, if you refer to Jesus as your Savior and you fully understand what that means, if you call him Lord with commitment in your heart and your mind, then that means that at some point in time, the line of your life intersected that drawn by the will of God. Perhaps a dramatic moment forever etched in your memory. Maybe for you a gradual awakening in which those truths you heard since childhood finally became your possession and joy. But whenever and however it happened to you, there was a time in which you met Jesus Christ and he became personally meaningful to you. Be assured of this, that when you met Jesus, it was because he was looking for you. Not you as a part of a large, faceless, whosoever mob of people but you as an individual, you as a person whose name was already inscribed on the pages of the word of life. Just as certainly as he once sought Simon and Andrew and James and John, so he sought you and me and all who believe. This is much more than sterile doctrine or another cold step in our ordered theology. This is life. This is certainty. This is hope and joy. This is the great and eternal benefit of the gospel in our understanding of our salvation. As I said last week, 
Branches do not fasten themselves to vines, but the vine produces the branches. We are his today. We will be his forever. This is our confidence, and this is our peace. But we do a great injustice to the gospel when we stop preaching it and thinking about it at those points where we are its beneficiaries. We need to go beyond that. We need to wonder why did God call Simon and Andrew and James and John. And the reason that he sought and found these men was not first and above all else their happiness and their success in life. But it was that through them the eternal purposes of God might be accomplished. Jesus calls us. He calls us to bear fruit for the glory of God. He calls us to resist the influence of the godless in every aspect of living. He calls, he calls us to contribute our time and talents and treasure to the building of his church. He calls us to be loving and faithful husbands and wives and godly parents and children. He calls us to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. And these callings we all share in Christ. He also calls us in very specific ways to be pastors, to be teachers, to lead and to serve his covenant people, to speak with those who do not yet believe and facilitate the praise and the fellowship of those who do. Every one of us in this room has these general callings. Many of us in this room have these specific callings. The men called by Christ in our text followed him away from nearly all that was dear and familiar to them. They had little idea where he would lead or what would become of them. They simply sensed that he was supremely worthy of their trust. This same Jesus calls us to follow him and to serve him. As we once again take leave of this place and one another, may it be as a people who have heard his voice and are heard saying to one another, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this piece of history. We thank you for the faithfulness of these four men, three of whom served you to their dying breaths. We thank you for what you were able to accomplish through them. But we also thank you, our God, for the reminder that this is much more than history. Because by these words, we are reminded that as specifically as you approached and called them, so you have approached and called each one of us who know you through Christ. And we reminded our God that we are called to serve you in the world and in the fellowship of your people. We pray, our God, that we might leave our nets immediately and follow you. In Jesus' name.